This is episode 106 of Alohomora for October 18th, 2014. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Eric Skull. And this week, we have a very special guest, one of the editors of Alohomora, one of the illustrious editors. Everybody, please give a warm welcome to Kara Kennedy. Hey guys, I'm so happy to be back. Welcome back. We are happy to have you, especially just as a huge thank you for all of the great work you do. Guys, the show would not happen if it was not for our editors, and Kara is one of those very important people. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, Kara, you've been on the show before? I have, yeah. It was a while ago. It was the very beginning of Order of the Phoenix, so it was probably Ooh. back in May or June. But I was thinking about it. I don't think any of you guys were on last time I was on. I think it was Michael, Lara, and... <laughs> Noah, actually. Yeah, I wasn't. Um, wow, that's yeah. funny. Now you've met the whole team. It's nice. Yeah, exactly. I'm familiar with your voices from editing, but had never <laughs> done an episode with you. Uh, Such a strange job, isn't it? Where we kind of we talk to each other. Yeah. Every week, and yet you have no idea who we are. Yeah, it is really weird. Okay, well, as always, we should start off this episode by saying that this week you should all have read Order of the Phoenix chapter 28, which is Snape's worst memory. Ah, such a chapter it is. But first, we have <laughs> recap comments from the previous week's chapter discussion, which was chapter 27. We get a lot of good comments here, so I'm going to get right into them. The first one coming from Huffle Pug, and they say, The magic behind the sneak jinx is interesting because it's very specific. The caster has to specify which word the pimples should spell, where they should show up on the face, and under what conditions they should appear. I wonder what the incantation or wand motion would be like for a spell with so many aspects. It might be like combining together several existing spells and dictating sneak at some point in it. Either way, it sounds super complex. I'm surprised there's no class in spell writing at Hogwarts because it sounds like a hard but useful skill. What do you guys think? I think it's a very interesting jinx, and I've always pictured it kind of kind of like a voodoo doll. Maybe like you draw a face and you draw the word sneak on it, and then you cast a jinx on a piece of paper that then kind of oh. transports itself onto that person. That spell just that got a lot creepier a in my mind. <laughs> that, that just got a lot creepier in my mind. I was like, I didn't know how Hermione was doing this, but now that you say that, I mean, I mean it makes sense, but like, that's terrifying. It is a really creepy spell, though, just to think of that occurring to Hermione and that it's so specific and that she really took the time to figure out how to do that. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, it's relatively harmless compared to what someone could do. That's like, true. Like, if they took it, like, a couple of steps further, like, it was, if it wasn't sneak written across, but something <laughs> yeah. very much worse or, like, not just pimples, but, like, something very horrible. It's... And we know this thing scars as well. Like, Marietta still has this word on her forehead several books later. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Serves her right, though. Oh, gosh. She deserves it. Surely there's something Hermione could do, right? To get it off, right? I mean, if she knew exactly what she did to put it on, she could probably, if asked... You know, and it's not... um, we don't really quite know what Madame Pomfrey's uh, skill or prowess. There's there's very few times in the books where we learn how good or bad she is at what she does, but she is unable to get or even make a dent in this spell, um, being the school nurse. The only the only thing we ever see that's similar to like it having such a lasting effect is in Deathly Hallows when um, George's ear gets cursed off. Right. Like obviously that's yeah. worse because it's a curse and there's no way to repair it, but like. This, what Hermione does, is fair, is the closest thing we come to something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And considering she's so down on, you know, the Half-Blood Prince spells and things next book, for her to come That's up with true. this, you know, a, a year younger than... <laughs> Honestly, Hermione, you can't talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, next comment comes from Spellifant. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, since Caleb wasn't on this episode, meaning last week's episode, I feel I need to step up and give McGonagall the shout-out she deserves. 
She boldly calls out the ministry for their shady dealings with criminals, is hilariously sarcastic with Umbridge, and declares that she will fight Fudge and his team of Aurors alongside Dumbledore. Her Gryffindor is just roaring away here. You cannot deny McGonagall's got style. <laughs> Spell with it, we should be best friends, because this is the best thing I've read, like, all week. I couldn't agree more. Perfectly said. <laughs> this is a good chapter for McGonagall. Um, the next comment comes from Angsty Sirius. Uh, who says, I always felt that Dumbledore was just pretending to be able to get out of Azkaban. I mean, sure, he is the greatest wizard of his time, and at this point in the series, there were so many breakouts that it doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore, but it kind of still is. Sirius was only able to escape Azkaban 12 years after being imprisoned, although he could have escaped so much earlier, he only managed to escape because he was getting obsessed with a desire for revenge after he found out that revenge was still possible, otherwise he never would have managed. As for Barty Crouch Jr., he had to be dragged out of there half-dead with his mother being willing to die in his stead. And the mass breakout in January also was only possible because Voldemort was behind it, and he's the second most powerful wizard. Probably. Anyway, he's somewhere up there, and he most likely had some sort of deal with the Dementors going. So as for Dumbledore and Azkaban, I think Mr. Weasley is right by saying that this is the last thing they'd want to happen because there's a lot of guilt he is still feeling about Ariana, Grindelwald, all of that, and he never was able to leave uh, that guilt behind. As Harry puts it in Deathly Hallows, quote, he was never free, end quote, and that would have kept him in Azkaban. You're not able to leave just because you're unable to escape the cage you create out of your own despair and guilt, and not even Dumbledore is above the Dementors and the depression that they represent. I always imagine him in the mindset he's in when he's drinking the potion in Half-Blood Prince, and such a weakened Dumbledore would not be able to escape. Huh. Final paragraph. Uh, I also don't think that the Order would be able to help him escape. Like they say, half of them would risk losing their job, and what could they really do? I don't see how they could do it the way the Death Eaters did it, and also the way Barty Crouch Jr. did it. It's not really working in this scenario. So Dumbledore, could he get out of Azkaban? Well, it's interesting that this person is very firmly against it. It's because this is the exact question we used for our battle tweet um, earlier in the week, and overwhelmingly people said they fully expected Dumbledore to be able to get himself out of Azkaban. Mm. So, but this definitely brings up some interesting points. I mean, would he be crippled by the Dementor? I mean, he, we know he doesn't like the Dementors, and I feel like as of book seven, we know why, right? But I mean, even in book three, it was like, yeah, Dumbledore really doesn't like those guys. Um, yeah. So yeah. does that... I do think yeah. that, he, yeah, the guilt, he would feel a lot of guilt, and he would uh, be affected badly by the Dementors. Um, I have a theory, if not two, of how he might be able to escape. Obviously, you can't apparate or disapparate from inside of Hogwarts, <laughs> but we see him disappear with the with Forks the Phoenix. So mm-hmm. perhaps, well, is that or is that just a movie thing? Uh, I'm no, really sure he does that in the book. No, I think, I think that's you're it. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so maybe it is. like Forks could be used to get him out, and yeah, if not, then point. maybe House Elves. <laughs> get Dobby yeah. to rescue him from Azkaban. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. They seem to have, you know, apparating powers that beyond the ones that wizards do. Yeah, so I would be more privy to agree with the the Phoenix because I think that the people who like do the protections on Azkaban would be more likely to consider the possibility of the house elf yeah. um, being able to do mm-hmm. that. Um, but phoenixes are rare enough that I don't think they either. Well, they probably know about it, but don't understand the magic, and certainly don't have access to it to guard against it. It's probably yeah, something so specific. It. Yeah, it'd be so specific to Dumbledore. Like, who else yeah. would just have a phoenix kind of hanging around <laughs> to come rescue them? Right. And they're quite pure creatures. Like, aren't they hard to tame? I think I read somewhere where like only yeah. the only yeah, like I a think so. really yeah, pure person. Um, mm, yeah, so the kind of person who wouldn't normally be in Azkaban anyway. Um, that's true has a it could contradict the effect of the dementors well um do you think uh, here's a side that i was thinking of while i was reading this chapter but do you think um that occlumency could potentially protect against dementors like mm-hmm. in a, just in the it form of if you in the form of guarding your mind and they kind of yeah. bring out the word you know because it's like it's not like a psychic invasion kind of but it kind of is it depends if you think guilt is conscious or subconscious. Oh, there you go. That's true. That's a good point. Getting deep today. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Okay, well, the final comment uh, from last week's chapter discussion comes from Rose Lumos, who says, When discussing what kind of spell Kingsley performed on Marietta, on this reread, I assumed that it was the Imperious Curse. Harry sees that Marietta's eyes looked oddly blank, and she seems to nod and shake her head without much emotion. After being attacked by Umbridge, she was neither perturbed by Umbridge's sudden attack nor relieved by her release. She was still clutching her robe up to her oddly blank eyes, staring straight ahead of her. We know that when Harry has the Imperious Curse put on him previously, he too describes how his mind feels blank. Moody slash Crouch Jr. also describes his time under his father's Imperious Curse as something similar as being in a trance. This makes Marietta's symptoms seem less like a memory curse, in which outer symptoms are just confusion or eagerly believing a fake memory, depending on the memory charm, and instead like the Imperious Curse, in which the cursed are in some form of a foggy trance. I know that any of the unforgivable curses are illegal, so I wonder if this was the Imperious Curse, and if it was, what the ethics are in this case. Is it right to curse a student if, I hate to say it, it is for the greater good? I also love Joe's subtle foreshadowing, as the name Marietta reminds me of a marionette, a type of puppet controlled by wires and <laughs> spring, or strings. <laughs> Um, also love for Kristen, who is the special guest on last week's episode. Uh, Rose Lumos says, don't stop wanting to be a stormtrooper at Disney. So, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, guys, what do you think? Um, was it the, un- you know, was it the Imperius curse? Was it something similar that was legal or what's going on? Well, I thought that was so interesting because every time I've reread this book and got to that part, I always forget, and I think it is the Imperious Curse. Because, Same. yeah, <laughs> I think it's described so much like it. And I remember Harry even said, or he thinks that it's something like he feels something rush past him and mm-hmm. some kind of feeling. And that, I feel like, would lend itself more to like a really strong curse, like an unforgivable curse, rather than mm-hmm. just a memory charm. I mean, I don't know why you would feel the presence of it kind of rush by you. And if it was just a memory charm, then you would get some kind of reaction when she's attacked by Umbridge, surely. Right. Like, if she was right. just not remembering that one thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, wasn't there, I mean, this is the end of book six, but isn't there a gust of, like, a gust of wind when Dumbledore is, um, you know, at, by Snape? <laughs> Sorry, oh, yeah, shady. I think you're right. Isn't there, like, a yeah. gust, there's, like, a flash of green light and there's, like, a gust of wind, and I always took it to be, like, his yeah. soul leaving his body or something ridiculous, but... Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like I feel like the unforgivable curses all have like a whoosh. That's just kind of yeah, like I rush of something. Yeah, yeah, like a rush. I know they always like explain that with Avada Kedavra that there's like a rushing sensation or rushing noise yeah. or something. Fascinating. Powerful curses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that concludes the comments from last week's chapter discussion. And we're going to jump into your responses to our question of the week, and to remind you of that question. In the final scene of the chapter, we see the confrontation between the Ministry and Dumbledore. Once Fudge orders Dawlish and Shacklebolt to seize Dumbledore, a flash of silver light flitters around the room, and they are knocked out cold. As Harry, McGonagall, and Marietta wake up, the text notes that Fox the Phoenix soared in wide circles above them, singing softly. The four converse, Dumbledore takes hold of Fox's tail feather, and they are off. The second they are gone, the rest awake. What kept them asleep? Was it the jinx, the presence of Dumbledore as a spellcaster, or even perhaps Fox's song, or all of them combined? So there were some very interesting responses to this. Some, A lot of people had a very similar overall thought, but then people took it in some uh, unique directions. And the first response is from Snatch the Snitch and says, I think the jinx simply knocked out Dollish Fudge, Shacklebolt, and Umbridge. McGonagall, Harry, and Marietta were never knocked out. McGonagall had pulled them to the ground and out of harm's way. I don't think Dumbledore as the spellcaster had anything to do with it because he says, now they will awake very soon, and tells them some info quickly. And as far as Fox is singing, I'm not really sure. Can a phoenix's song make one tired? I only remember that it strikes fear in the hearts of evil and gives courage to the good. And really quickly, Jake Potter responded to this and said, I agree with Snatch the Snitch about the Jinx knocking them out, but I think that Fox is a bit more magical than is led on. I think it was his song that kept them asleep, and his flying and singing was part of a rhythmic pattern making sure they stayed knocked out. I also think Dumbledore and Fox are linked in some way. I think they have some weird connection with each other, and perhaps the presence of Dumbledore aided Fox in his song, giving him somewhat of a boost, and when they left... 
Fudge and crew woke up, kind of like when Harry was released from this freezing spell after Dumbledore was, spoiler alert, (laughs) killed by Snape because he has left the world. But in this case, he had simply left Hogwarts. By Dumbledore and Fox leaving, the spell was lifted and they woke up. So in a way, I believe it was a combination of all three. No, I I like the idea of of Fox being... Fox having even more magical pro like his song is that it's kind of over in the realm of Pokemon now he's kind of like a Jigglypuff like he yeah. <laughs> vanquishes enemies I mean just don't give Fox a sharpie and I think, think we will be, yeah. be alright okay. oh cartoon references awesome thank you <laughs> I love the idea that Dumbledore and Fox are linked um, I've always mm-hmm. thought that and I would love to know more about the backstory between how Fox came to be with Dumbledore Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, wouldn't that make such a good way of linking Fantastic Beasts into the main story? If oh, you have yes. Fantastic Beasts and that gets in. Yeah, that would. Please do that, Joe. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I would just love to know how, how Forks and Dumbledore came to find each other. It would be awesome. Mm-hmm. And isn't. But um, as for the actual question. Well, yeah, yeah, no, but isn't Dumbledore's um, Patronus a Phoenix? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. He seems to share a lot of qualities with the true like the true nature of what phoenixes are yeah mm-hmm. it's interesting with the idea of forks as um a constantly resurrecting um animal links with the deathly hallows and eternal life and all of that kind of thing you've got that kind of heavily linked in with the whole of the dumbledore and voldemort storyline oh right um yeah um, as well as rebirth and i've always thought that because yeah. um mm-hmm. dumbledore has that rebirth moment where he no longer you know, seeks the power and all that for himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has two actual rebirths. Well, I shouldn't say actual, but two rebirths. One is the portrait, obviously, as a former headmaster, oh. and also that final scene with Harry. Oh, yeah, that's true. And the King's Cross. So that's beautiful. Um, I've always thought that Dumbledore might be related to one of the other Peveril brothers as well. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe Forks gets passed down through that family line. Oh, that'd be cool. Possible. The next response comes from Spinner's End and says... I think it's great timing on Dumbledore's part. The Jinx knocked out the people Dumbledore intended to, and he is a competent enough wizard to make sure it only hits whom he wants to hit. I think he knew they wouldn't be out for very long. Dumbledore passed on the information he needed to very quickly and makes his escape. I think the Jinx was like a magical punch. It knocked them out for a short, unspecified amount of time, and they all come to dazed and confused. Dumbledore is a master of making things happen the way he wants. And when he can't make them happen that way, he makes it look like they happen that way. (laughs) I don't think Fox needed to be singing. I think it made a dramatic scene that would ensure people were talking about his escape. So flamboyant. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It does lead to describing um, Dumbledore's need for the the flair. (laughs) Yeah, he's got style. Let's put on some music. (laughs) Fox, uh, fly me to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah but I, the the idea that Dumbledore was being very rushed in his in like um, giving over the information yeah he he wasn't sure when they would wake up so he needs to get it done as quickly as possible that's true that yeah. does speak and to it he'll leave as soon as they do yeah that that's true that does speak to the degree of control that he had over their unconsciousness that's a very good uh, point in the end. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he was able to be careful enough to fully target everyone he wanted because otherwise I don't think Joe would have made the point of having McGonagall push Harry and Marietta down to like avoid it so he probably trusted that she would make sure that they were safe right yeah Yeah, I'm fairly sure there's like a shared look like she knows what he's planning yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) right and the final response comes from Nikki Griff it says I feel that it was Fox's song that knocked Harry and company out We've obviously seen that phoenixes are very powerful creatures. The only remedy to basilisk venom, capable of rebirth, are extremely hard to domesticate, etc. Therefore, I don't think it's completely implausible that they are capable of making wizards insensate. In book six, we see the true power of their song when Fox produces the lament. Producing the effect that the song is inside the listener's head is very powerful magic, very similar to Voldemort's methods. As Fox is highly devout to Dumbledore... It would not surprise me that Fox would go to any lengths to help out his master. Alternatively, a phoenix song is meant to increase the courage of the good. Dumbledore, who is arguably the paradigm for the greater good, could have been so affected by this increase in courage that when coupled with his already cogent powers, 
would have become so powerful for a fleeting moment that it knocked those around him out. Just the thought. Wow. That's really interesting. Amazing that we can have so many different theories. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. It was really challenging to pick responses. And definitely people uh, or listeners should go listen, uh, read some of the other responses because some people had some really unique perspectives. Even though they're you know, hovering around similar ideas, they sort of elaborated on it in different ways. Our fans are so clever. <laughs> Indeed. Well, brilliant. We should move on then to this week's chapter. Chapter 28. Snipes' worst memory. This is possibly one of the best known chapters in the book. Everyone loves this chapter or doesn't love it for specific reasons, but still (laughs) think it's a good chapter. We'll start off with a quick summary as usual. So as we've just discussed, Dumbledore has gone and the whole school seems to know what happened in the headmaster's office. Said office has now sealed itself against Umbridge, quite right too. And in response, she's managed to fix it that Slytherin will definitely win the House Cup by creating the Inquisitorial Squad. Her first day as head teacher, however, definitely doesn't go to plan. Um, the Wheezy twins have something to say about it. And even Hermione is feeling rebellious. The equivalent scene in the movie is the bit where they're walking across the bridge, but it's even in the book, so it's even better. Um <laughs> Revision is progressing in earnest towards the exams, even with the disruption by the twins, and although Cho is feeling very apologetic about Marietta, she is still defending her. Harry will always side with Hermione, even when she's jinxing other students, and his dreams are continuing, as are his occlumency lessons. Um, But this time, he gets more than just his own troubled backstory in his little flashbacks. Boom. We should start off, though, by talking about the Inquisitorial Squad, because it's just completely outrage. awful. <laughs> there are no Slytherins on the panel today, are there? Yes, I am. Oh, oh, oh yeah. darn. We are so close. Yeah. But no, that's good. Like, I want to hear a Slytherin talk about this. Oh my Definitely. gosh, yeah. I have strong feelings, because <laughs> I, you know, as a Slytherin, I... I don't know. It seems weird to say I take offense, but like I take offense at seeing like my house portrayed this way because, (laughs) you know, it's operating under the illusion all Slytherins are bad. And I totally get that for the purpose of the series, like at this point in time, Slytherin is kind of the house that's, you know, against what Harry and his friends stand for. And I I totally get that. But I feel like we never like meet one good Slytherin. Like the closest one I could think of is like Slughorn. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, you know, and I, I like Slughorn, but I mean, he's not, you know, a heroic character necessarily. So I just think, I don't know, seeing the Inquisitorial Squad that they're all Slytherins and it's giving like, you know, the evil Umbridge is giving like full power, giving them equal power to prefix, you know, just because they're in this house and it just, I don't know. Even more power because they can dock house points. Yeah. Can't prefix do that as well? I thought no prefects are not in control of house. Really? Oh wow, right, that's even yeah. worse. Yeah. So my biggest question over this is like, why does Umbridge and like to branch off of what Kara is saying? Because I agree. I, I think that you know, as someone who like, if anything, borders towards Slytherin more than any other secondary house to Gryffindor, I have a really big problem with like the continuous um, stereotyping of them and um, like, why does Umbridge pick Slytherin? Because there are people in other houses who would be just as likely to back the ministry and what Fudge is doing as some of these characters in Slytherin. I think it's less about backing the ministry and more about backing Umbridge specifically. Like by now it's an all out war with Harry. I mean, we see that in this chapter Mm -hmm. when she presumably poisons him uh, or attempts to, you know, this is her against Harry and her against Dumbledore to a bigger extent. So it's gone beyond the normal do you agree with the ministry or not? And and she's kind of found these the the natural enemy of of Harry Potter in the in Draco Malfoy and, and his yeah. goons. And I think that's what the Inquisitorial <laughs> Squad is is more about. I mean, you don't. To be fair, you don't see. Um, I mean, an Inquisitorial Squad member like going and giving points back to the other houses, um, which is true. <laughs> but but at the same time, I think it's more about it's more about Harry. It's more about trying to get back at Dumbledore and Harry. I'm sure there is some influence from Malfoy Sr. in there as well, though, with his constant Mm -hmm. presence at the Ministry this year. There will be some connection between him and Umbridge and him and the Minister, um, and 
kind of getting his son up into her pocket during the year um, as well. Do you think that definitely? Do you think that Fudge has something to do with that though, or do you think he's just aloof to this, as with many other plots? I feel like at this point, this is all umbrage because. Yeah. Well, and I also think that there's a bit of kind of house loyalty going on here because I believe we know Umbridge was a Slytherin. Um, and I feel like at this point in, you know, the canon of the stories, like all Slytherins will stick together and not, you know, kind of commingle with anyone from any other houses. And it would make sense if there was going to be an exclusive kind of society like this, it would be all from Slytherin. Yeah. You know, in comparison to Dumbledore's army, which is, you know, Gryffindor's Ravenclaw buff. So then do we think that maybe like Malfoy is the launching pad for this and that it may, it, I mean, obviously Malfoy and Slytherin are um, untangleable there. They go hand in hand, but is it, is he the launching pad both? Well, mainly because of like Lucius's um, connection to everything and that the, these, these friends of Malfoy, it's a natural following and obviously they're in Slytherin that they would also be inquisitorial squad members. Probably. I think it's a little bit of kind of the mob mentality that, yeah. you know, if if Malfoy is going to do it, obviously Crabbe and Goyle are going to follow and, you know, Pansy Parkinson and, you know, they're all going to yeah. do what he does. He's like the ringleader. And Umbridge has been around the school for a while now as well. So she's seen friendship groups and she's seen kind of who who is talking to each other and who is fighting with each other. So she can deliberately pick, you know, the most antagonistic people to Harry mm-hmm. from the from the group and the ones that will work well together as a team, whether that team is for good or for evil. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she can handpick the students that she thinks will, will follow her path. And the reason um, that she's able to even do this is because she is now instated as the 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 headmistress. Like, because... Yeah. The, but it's right. because... Dumbledore left and we know he had to leave but at the same time this is all because Dumbledore left and Umbridge is given this maybe she's been trying to get this done for a while then yeah and it's only because Dumbledore is now gone that she's able to put it in place right mm-hmm. during the scene we also see um Ernie McMillan is there so we've got our our friendly Hufflepuff there representing gossiping yeah um, gossiping like crazy so indignant about this it's just oh poor Ernie <laughs> Um, we also run into Fred and George who say that Montague has tried to take points from them and they have forced him into a vanishing cabinet on the first floor. Of course, this is completely insignificant and requires no comment whatsoever. A vanishing cabinet. (laughs) A vanishing cabinet. (laughs) Who knows when that could come in useful. (laughs) Um, We also know that he, uh, Montague then turns up the next day during Harry's acclimacy lesson that we'll come on to later on, um... But yeah, it's, it's interesting just, that we've got an insignificant mention here. It's so funny that Fred and George um, have this run-in with him and they're just so defiant. And Fred and George in general in this chapter are just mm-hmm. the best <laughs> that they ever yeah. are. Um, they're just totally done with everything. <laughs> yeah, but like, it's they're such a force for good. Like, what they do mm-hmm. just manages and throughout this chapter to just amuse everybody. And and it's really and and it's strong magic to boot. I mean, we'll get to that later. But yeah, in general, the the Slytherins. I mean, you got people like Malfoy who are you know Weasley. I don't like the way I don't like that shirt you're wearing. Like five points from Gryffindor. <laughs> um, yeah. The interesting thing is that, uh, like you said, Rosie, in, the, in your chapter summary, though, it, it pretty much guarantees the house victory for Slytherin um, mm-hmm. at the house cup. I mean it. Gryffindor used to be, you know, neck and neck and it was high up, but but by the end of the chapter I think even there's there's barely any coins left in Gryffindor and that that's all the points they accumulated all year. And so you you can really yeah. just assume they're yeah, getting back day. to the Slytherins that they really were abusing the Gryffindors in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one other point about Montague, if I can just make another pro Slytherin <laughs> or defensive <laughs> you can try. Uh, Slytherin yeah. point. I think seeing Fred and George um you know, push Montague into the vanishing cabinet. That's something that's, you know, we kind of cheer for them. Like, oh, yeah, you know, the bad guy. But it is really kind of a ruthless thing to do. And especially when you look at what Hermione just did to Marietta, you know, cursing her so she's kind of permanently disfigured. It's kind of like these are really, you know, ruthless things to do. And I think eventually Malfoy says something about um, Montague, like when when he's finally found, like, he, you know, was kind of stuck in limbo for, like, days or weeks. And, like, you know, it yeah. really is kind of, I think when we read the book, we obviously are, you know, on the Gryffindor side here. And we're looking at, like, oh, they, they deserved what they got. But it's kind of interesting to see, you know, 
Gryffindors aren't exactly perfect either. They're not, you know, some of the things they do are really ruthless. I just think that's interesting because we're so, I feel like you so read from the Gryffindor point of view. How dare you suggest such a thing? No, I completely, I, actually, <laughs> I gotta I, speak up for my house. I'm blown away. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm blown away by that because the Vanishing Cap, it is like, you never know when that's going to reappear. Like you could, you would be, I think, why am I thinking of Egypt? You're somewhere where you don't know. You're like, in, <laughs> you're in between places for like months right. on end. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can be well, one day because it's broken too, isn't it? Like that's the whole the, yeah. the vanishing right. You can't get the out. Thing takes yeah. Malfoy a whole year to fix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's super <laughs> broken, and there's probably a jagged edge or two inside there. And they just threw. Just yeah. Think of those little birds in the movie. They died. <laughs> yeah, that's that Sad. could be Montague. That could be. <laughs> I think they died because Bellatrix went in and broke their neck. But anyway. Um, that's what I got from it, but but yeah, it's yeah. I guess it is cruel. I mean, he would miss his uh, his whole academic year potentially. I mean, mm-hmm. isn't there a lesser you know kind of offense they could have gotten back at him through? So yeah, they aren't right. thinking; they're just being bold and brash and Gryffindor. Right? Yeah, and well, and the, they talk that. about like at this point they have reached the point of no return. Like they're ready. Yeah, to they go, don't care. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. all out. Yeah. And yet they talk about a line. They talk about a line that they... They used to recognize that line, but not anymore. Oh, okay. Now Dumbledore's gone. That line is yeah. far, far away. Okay. <laughs> and phase one begins at lunchtime. So. Yep. <laughs> Before we get to lunch, though, um, Umbridge actually summons Harry to see her um, and illegally doctors his tea with a truth potion. Um, later on, Snape tells us that um, he used up her veritaserum. Um, which is in what what she's putting in his tea, basically. Would she point. have put it in his milk? Because um, he asks for because like she conjures the um a variety of drinks: pumpkin juice, butterbeer, you know, tea or something. Then I guess he chooses tea, and then she pours the milk. Like, do you think the milk is what had the verticillium in it? I know it's kind of like a small concern. Well, he, she wouldn't have put verticillium in pump. Uh, she wouldn't have put milk in pumpkin juice. Well, that's what I'm right, saying. It's, like, it's probably the just like, in problem. the bottom of the glass. Oh, so the veritaserum mm-hmm. is just in the bottom of each of the glasses. I figured it was just oh. in everything. So that's yeah. why she um, used it all up or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Pick a drink, any drink. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're, all, they're all poison. Which, of course, he doesn't. She focuses on um, both Dumbledore and Sirius's whereabouts. That's her key focus on you know what she's trying to question him about. Um why does she think that Harry, in particular, would know? Like, he is just a schoolboy. He's Dumbledore's man, through and through. <laughs> yeah, but, like, Dumbledore's the brains. Harry's just the kid that Look, does if stuff. Look, <laughs> yeah. if anybody knows where Dumbledore is, it's going to be Harry. I'm sorry. It just is. In Sirius Black, she knows that they conversed together in the fire. She says, I know this for a fact that it was him and he's talking to you. So that's, that's why she asked specific questions about them. What I'm not... Um, what I'm surprised about is how quick, how easily she lets him off. Like she just lets him leave as soon as he says, "I have no idea." Twice. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, she thinks that he has actually yeah. drunk the veritaserum serum because well, because he doesn't know not to trust the drink. Right. Could, but could he have really like put on a little bit better of a show? Because don't we know from <laughs> Barty Crouch Junior.'s veritaserum serum experience that you kind of go slack a little bit? Um, yeah. Maybe she's never seen it before. That didn't. Yeah. Maybe she had never seen the effects of the. Before you're right, but I think um, I mean bless uh, Barty Crouch again being a good teacher, right? Um, for, <laughs> for or even Moody. I mean, I guess Moody's really the, the emulated uh, one here where he doesn't trust yeah. an outside stranger's drink. drink, right? Carrying his own drink around. <laughs> so my big question was though, if Harry would have drank um, drank the potion, would he still not have been able to give enough information to Umbridge? He wouldn't have been able to say where Dumbledore went because no. he legitimately doesn't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And he can't give the whereabouts of Grimald Place oh, because he's not the secret keeper. Yeah. Um, so that so scene I don't would think have played out in exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he, he would have been able it. to say that Sirius is in hiding and he knows where, but he can't say where or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that may have, been, may have given Umbridge more reason to like detain him or something like that and further try to get information out Isn't that um, flawed a little bit? Like, once the secret keeper reveals the location of, say, twelve Grimmauld Place, for instance, don't each of those people become individuals like secret keepers? Like- no, that only happens when he dies. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So Harry just would have, like, some magical force would have prevented him from being able to divulge right. about mm-hmm. Grimmauld Place. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
During this scene, though, we do have a large explosion from downstairs, um, which, of course, Harry had nothing to do with and has proof because he was sat there with Umbridge. (laughs) And this is the magical fireworks, which are seriously impressive magic. We were talking about Hermione earlier, but this is just another level. Hermione even praises them, um, and they just... They're so clever that they'll even respond differently to different counter jinxes. Like, they multiply if you try to vanish them. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) How much work has gone into these fireworks? It's ridiculous. And they use their whole supply, too. Which is is great. Everything about um, the school's reaction and the teacher's reaction, uh, there's this great scene with with, what Flitwick, by the end of the day, Umbridge is just covered in soot. And Flitwick is like, (laughs) I I didn't know if I had the authority to banish them myself. (laughs) It's it's just so, (laughs) it's so... Anger, it's like so passive aggressive, so tongue in cheek, so mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. perfect ever. And the Weasley twins really just, I mean, they could have won back all the points for Gryffindor in like that one yeah, action done, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if any of the teachers had dared uh, to award them. But uh, yeah, that's. Fred, George, you're awake. Here, have some points. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it really is just perfect. I mean, and, and as you said, Rosie, the, the different spells. Um, you know, having the different effect, the explosions, the multiplying. Oh, and at one point mm-hmm. they just run into each other and yeah. there's a phrase that's like, like it looks like they they have a new breed of fireworks. So <laughs> I don't know what's going on like with those fireworks, but um, it's the coolest thing ever. We have to borrow Noah's old quote and say, is it alive? Oh, God. <laughs> well, they just had babies <laughs> if they uh, did have babies if they're alive. It would be interesting to have Fred and George have a fireworks duel with Gandalf. That, you know what? Thank you for mentioning that. That is the only other instance of like magic wizard firework things that I can think of, and that's Dumbledore's or sorry, a Gandalf set that he brings to the Shire. Although there is a big giant dragon firework in Mulan. Oh yeah, that's a that's whole true. different. <laughs> Fish. Cartoon <laughs> references, nice. <laughs> it's a good episode today. <laughs> um, later on that evening, when we do see these fireworks um, mating, I think is the actual quote in the book, um, <laughs> Harry has actually been woken up from a dream, and that dream is one, of more, one more of his prophetic dreams about the Department of Mysteries. He is progressing further and further into the department. Um, but he gets interrupted before he sees what he actually needs to do in the actual Hall of Prophecy. And I was wondering if this is the first dream that is properly controlled by Voldemort. Um, it shows Harry exactly what he would need to do when he actually goes to the Ministry. Um, we so we see every door that he has to go through, what the rooms look like, um, and finally uh, and find the the shelf that the prophecy would be on. And it's just as he's reaching out to touch a prophecy that he wakes up. And it just, his scar is prickling and there just seems to be kind of shades of Voldemort all over this. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I no, I, I absolutely think that that, this could very well be the first, as you say, properly controlled dream by Voldemort. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, so too, because I, I, I think I, he's I like been that. learning how to like manipulate that connection that they share. And I think he, this is the point where he's kind of getting a handle on it. Yeah. So it's kind of from this point, onwards that Harry really really needs his occlumency and of course Mm -hmm. we see (laughs) that it doesn't go quite to plan Um, and we actually see that Harry has forgotten to practice so far um, and now worries that Snape will find (laughs) out about this particular dream Um, so it's quite interesting that Voldemort if if he did control this dream is properly getting into his head now like Harry really does have the saving people thing. He knows that this is important somehow, but he doesn't know how, And he, but he wants to follow it through, even if that will be bad. Mm-hmm. He knows It's interesting it's how but... circumstances keep popping up to like um, hinder Harry's ability to really go through with occlumency. I mean, mm-hmm. just it's like left and right. Things keep popping up. It's like the perfect storm for him to not be able to fully master it mm-hmm. and allowing Voldemort to keep prying. Yeah, and I think just especially in this book, just his emotions in general are just not very well controlled, and that's understandable, but it just doesn't lend itself very well to someone who needs to master Aquamancy because he's just, you know, just he really wears his heart in his sleeve in this book, I think. And so it's yeah. no wonder that he has trouble controlling, I don't know, where his mind goes. But if Dumbledore is so worried about, you know, these dreams and he knows exactly what's going on and he knows that Aquamancy is so important, 
why does he rely on Snape to teach Harry? Because they, he knows <laughs> about Harry and Snape's story. Well, he knows that it's never going to work. You know, why does he do it? We've had this discussion ongoing for episodes now, and all I can say that yeah. really has been um, figured out is that this happened. I mean, with the, with Dumbledore having to leave the castle. And and that's something that I mean now Harry would would be done. Say he was getting lessons from Dumbledore, they'd be done now, um, because Dumbledore had to leave. He wasn't going to be there yeah. to see the yeah. whole year through. And I mean, it's possible that let's be honest, if he did have classes with Dumbledore, he could already be a master in the subject because I mean, yeah. we just assume <laughs> that Dumbledore is so much better of a teacher. Um, but I'm sure there's a different method of teaching it than the one that Snape is using. Yeah. Yeah. The aggression, aggressive method. Yeah. Um, but this dream that Harry has is on his mind, and it actually influences his decision to peek in the in the um, in the pensive later. Is because <laughs> he he recognizes the silver stuff from being inside the prophecies in his dream, and he feels kind of initially there's this tug of, I want to find out some more. kind of memory. Yeah, I want to find out more <laughs> of. About like basically about my dream. He d- he does not expect at all what he actually yeah. finds. <laughs> no, and what he does actually find. Nice link there. Um, <laughs> is Snape's memory? It's his memory of the OWL um, defense against the dark arts exam. So it's Snape's favorite subject, um, <laughs> and Harry's favorite subject as well. Um, we we go into the exam, we look around, Harry immediately recognises Snape just behind him. He looks around and spots his dad a few rows ahead and he kind of glides forward through the desks um, in, in tracking the, the little tuft of hair on the back of his head that stands up in just the same way. <laughs> <laughs> the detail in this is just, it's brilliant. Like what mm-hmm. like 15 year old would think of these things? Um, but yeah, you probably would if you were seeing your dad at that age for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, James is actually writing the initials L.E. on his exam paper. He's finished early, um, as many 15-year-old boys will do in their exams. He's doodled. Um, <laughs> he is doodling on his exam paper. And Harry doesn't recognise his own mother's initials. Which I, yeah, really, I always really find sad. this so strange. No. Yeah. It's not Especially strange. Especially like just the <laughs> L. I mean, L.E. possibly well, be? L.E. could be <laughs> yeah. anybody, okay? It really could. Like, well, I don't know if it could be, but Ellie, I, I understand why he doesn't know his mom's initials. I mean, she was, well, mudblood, muggle-born, um, and <laughs> her parents are nobody. Like, they're just, I mean, they're Petunia's parents, too, but, like, Harry just was, we know how Petunia barely talks about her sister, and maybe they're dead at this time, or at the time when Harry was raised up. So, we, you know, we just, you don't hear about her surname. You don't hear about her family or, or Harry's extended family through his mother's or Petunia's side. Mm-hmm. It's just the Potters and the Dursleys. There's no Evanses involved. Yeah, you yeah. know what? That's weird. Yeah, I it. could see him not knowing his mother's maiden name, especially since she's never, ever discussed. But I just feel like if it's his father and he knows that they met while well, at Hogwarts and he's like, it starts with an L, yeah, like, you <laughs> wouldn't make the connection, <laughs> but maybe not. I, I think it's he funny He kind of because, forgets that his mum might be there at all. Like, well, yeah. But yeah. so interested in his dad. You know, and yeah, also there, there's this rustling, uh, or sorry, there's this rustling in this memory of, this is Snape's memory, and there's this idea that if Snape walks too far away from the, you know, in proximity from James and Sirius and Remus, Harry's not going to get to see them anymore. And, and mm-hmm. Harry's wrestling with clearly wanting to realize what, you know, why is this memory important? It's Snape's. But also, for the first time, he's looking... I mean, everything from these little boys, like, idiosyncrasies, like, their relationship to each other is so well, like, immediately just fleshed out. It's thrust upon Harry, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he is... um, He he can't do anything but just eat it up, and he is, like, staring them down and making note of everything that he sees. He's, like, properly speechless throughout this whole thing. Like, he's just their shadow throughout the whole memory yeah mm-hmm. but they really do seem like different people we've we've met Sirius and Remus and Peter obviously only briefly we've kind of we've heard James through the, the kind of prism of Hagrid and Sirius and everyone else but they the the four that we meet have kind of only the the thinnest grasp on the four that we we think we know they seem like different people um 
I love all of the, the jokes about the werewolf question on the exam paper. That seems like the combination <laughs> yeah. that we were w- waiting for. Um, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's hard to match them up with the actions that then, that they then go into. Right. Like knowing what will happen later. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. if, I think it's kind of unfortunate you don't, because when Sirius points out to James that the reason Lily was acting partially the way she acted, the way she did, is because she doesn't like that he's so conceited. I wish we could have seen how, like, off scene, how James dealt with that and how yeah. he kind of reacted and responded. Well, we know he internalizes it, right? You know, he he doesn't say anything outwardly, but I think there's a there's a failed attempt at, you know, when, when he says what's up with her, like, um, Harry says he tried and failed to make it look like that question wasn't a big deal um, yeah. to him. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how James, I think, I feel like the indicators are all here as to, like, it's a lot of bravado. How he would, yeah, yeah, a lot of bravado, a <laughs> lot of t- tussling of the hair. Um, you know, the interesting thing I <laughs> yeah. want to bring up too is that uh, Peter is, I believe, exclusively referred to as Wormtail um, by Harry yeah. for, first by Harry, which is actually I think weirder. Um, be, and and of course the the Marauders all call each other by their you know names later. So um, when uh, Sirius tells James to stop catching the snitch, he says. Put that away, will you, before Wormtail wets himself from excitement. But the issue is that with Harry, um, when he first sees him, he's like, oh, yep, there's, it means Wormtail has to be around here somewhere. Oh, yep, there he is. It's like <laughs> this villainization of, of Wormtail because of how, mm-hmm. because of what Wormtail is to Harry in present day. And, and it's like, mm-hmm. that's why they use, cause like that name to me always means like evil. Whereas if you were to talk about Peter Pettigrew, I'd be like, oh, yeah, little boy, you know, kind of troubled. Um, but because he's introduced as Wormtail and Wormtail all throughout, you can really just, there's this like overbearing sense of look like he is a, but he is going to one day betray them. And, and like, it's almost like paratextually, she can't, we aren't supposed to forgive him for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're all, yeah, we, we see a happy scene between them and we're, we're still supposed to be very suspicious of it. Yeah. We we see the happy scene in contrast to the the tragedy in on, in its end. Oh, and like yeah. there's when they do the joke about uh the werewolf, too, Wormtail's the only one who doesn't laugh, you know? Like yeah. Harry <laughs> Harry picks that up. Um it's it's like it's just so weird. It's such a we it's weird to be in think about this, like you're confronted with your your own father who you've never known basically, looks almost exactly like you. And Harry is to come to terms with the fact that this boy, at first, it's, like, mildly amusing, but by the end of it, like, all this messing of his hair and all of the way he yeah. re- reacts to people actually grates Harry so intensely because he is arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I kind of like how much... Sorry, go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, it's kind of like James is the epitome of, you know, the exact opposite of a person Harry would want to hang out with. And yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like to realize that about a father you've never known and that you've probably always kind of idolized. Yeah. I mean, is he more like... I was like... wondering how much this was a, a true reflection of the actual scene or whether memories are influenced by the emotions of the person remembering. Um, we see, mm-hmm. obviously, Slughorn doctor a memory later on. Mm. Um, but mm-hmm. can the actual memory itself be clouded by someone's opinion? If that's the case, then perhaps James wasn't quite so bad, but because we're seeing it from Snape's point of view, he's remembering all of the bad things. So we see the detail of him rustling his hair and all that kind of stuff because of it? Or is it just a complete kind of faithful representation of what actually happened? I want to believe it's faithful. I want to believe that it's unbiased too, even though it's coming from Snape's... Because part of the magic of the pensive right is to extrapolate like from your memory and be able like... It's kind of the weird thing is because I don't think Snape could really hear everything that they're talking about, that they are talking about in this scene. It's very convenient. Yeah, that's why I was inclined to think it was like a faithful representation too, because I don't think Snape was really even that, you know, he was sitting pretty far away, I think. And so concentrating just, on his exam, right. you know, for some reason. And, and and let me just say this about Snape, okay? He's writing, like, he has tiny handwriting, we find out in the next book too, how cramped and, and ugly it is, but... Feminine. Feminine, feminine yeah. yeah. Well, but he's writing a foot longer than anybody around him. And Harry does, you know, uh, pick that up. And I just think he was... He was really into what he did. And it doesn't seem like Snape has many friends. Like, he's got Lily and he's got um, some older students in other years. But maybe once, you know, like, Lucius might have already graduated by now. Possibly. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe he's alone. And maybe that's why he's... 
so focused on work. There's got no one to talk. There's to. another. Um, I got an. I got the sense of that. Uh, a little later on, when um, when he insults Lily and she responds yeah. by saying "fine, snivelous," like she calls mm-hmm. him that. I don't think it's even because James calls him that. I think that's just a school known nickname for him. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. clearly purported that's the by final straw. That's her. That's the the last thing. Her giving up on him. And yeah. Yeah, then he's on his own. but she just succumbs <laughs> to that nickname, and it's just like probably one of her worst moments. I wanted to talk about Lily because there's this progression. Uh, I mean, Harry instantly recognizes her by her eyes um, mm-hmm. when she comes <laughs> over, and there really is just in this chapter this progression of of Harry realizing that his father's arrogant. I mean, at first he he realizes that uh, James's hair is messed up, just like his is, right? It sticks up in exactly the same place in the back. Then he <laughs> sees James like fiddle with it. And then Lily comes up and accuses him of doing it, of like messing with his hair specifically so that it looks like he just got off a broom. Like it's <laughs> there's this evolution of of James into this into this character in addition to his actions um, berating Snape and attacking Snape. And you know, I, I just I can't help but feel that Lupin is a little bit responsible too for for all of what happens because he was just kind of in a book, you know, and and kind of not. He looks the he, he looks it. the other way. Yeah. And I, I just yeah. Nobody's um nobody gets off hundred percent scot free in this in this in this incident, which I feel is so accurate to like school fights and school issues at all. Um mm-hmm. yeah. it's kind of like everybody is to blame. They're all very complicated situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like I can't remember if this was like on Pottermore or if if uh, Lupin says this at some point, but didn't he say something like he was so grateful to finally have friends because he never was around other kids growing up and yeah. Yeah. because he was so thankful to have those friends, he really let them get away with a lot. And he's, I think, I'm fairly he sure says he something. says that in the fire conversation later on. Yeah, yeah. yeah something but, about, like, letting James get away with a lot more. Yeah, but he's, like, had two years to get over the fact that he has friends. Like, stand up, <laughs> do the right thing, you're a Gryffindor. Um, mm-hmm. You just want to. I would like to bring up a, a parallel between Harry and Voldemort again here. Ooh, go ahead. Okay. Try. Um, <laughs> I can't wait. So, think about um, Slughorn's memory in the next book mm-hmm. um, and the age at which Voldemort goes in search of his father and makes his first kill. Um. He is in fifth year when that happens. So he is doing his owls at that year. This is mm-hmm. Harry's owl year and it's the time where he discovers his father. Wow. Both of them oh, discover how much of a disappointment their fathers are and side with their mother instead at this point. Voldemort obviously then finds out that his mother died very early. Harry knows already that his mother died very early. They both kind of forgive their mothers and have no kind of real suspicion of her. Voldemort obviously thinks that she was weak. Harry doesn't. Um, but both of them kind of struggle to understand why their mother would like their father. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'd never thought about that. That's really interesting. They are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> but choices, choices, choices are what define them. Right. Yeah. They are. <laughs> and maybe it is the difference in the mother that makes a lot of, has a lot of effect. Mm-hmm. Both of them died to save their son, just in very different ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. in different circumstances. Yeah. And it is Harry's choice that has caused him a lot of trouble in this scene um, to bring it back. Uh, Snape is beyond angry when he discovers Harry in the pensive and he completely loses control. He he yells, he pushes Harry to a side. Um, Harry later has a bruise on his arm because of the violence of this encounter. Um, and Snape throws some of his potion ingredients onto the wall above Harry's head as he makes a hasty retreat. This is the worst that we have ever seen Snape. Um, and it's just, yeah, if you have any kind of remorse for Snape at all over this scene, it's just gut-wrenching to see how badly he reacts. I think... Um, but of course, we know it's got terrible consequences for Harry as well. I feel like the empathy for Snape is built up in this chapter. I mean, there's phrases. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I circled one. Um, uh, okay, so James says, go out with me and I'll never lay a wand on old Snively again. 
And then the direction uh, is behind him. The impediment Jinx was wearing off. Snape was beginning to inch toward his fallen wand, spitting out soap suds as he crawled. He's crawling on the ground. Soap is billowing out of his mouth. And he's only able, and he's so weakened by the force that he's only able to inch his way to his defense. I mean, this is, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, Snape takes it pretty well that Harry yeah. figured this out. I mean, you know, he he aims poorly at his face or something with the cockroach jar, but I yeah, this is this is really the chapter where you go, "Huh, Snape. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now but I understand." Not only is Snape completely incapacitated and only able to crawl and has got soap suds and all of that, but the way out of that situation is Lily agreeing to go out with James. And yeah. then James will never curse Snape again. Ugh, Snape's like, in love with Lily. Like, twist the knife. <laughs> it's it's a double torture. Well, I it's feel horrible. like that's, that's exactly why he calls her more blood to begin with. He's, he's putting on this false bravado of his own because yeah. he's so humiliated that he mm-hmm. that he lets that word slip. But an on, as we know from later books, the ongoing issue between them is um, the fact that she's not comfortable with his level of immersion in the dark arts and dark folks and who use that kind of word. And so that it's just really the worst uh, um, combination of uh, it's a perfect storm, as we were saying before, you know, it takes Harry. We're talking of Harry running away from Snape's office. It it takes him, I guess, three floors (laughs) before he stops. (laughs) He puts three floors distance between him and Snape. And um, it's that much anger. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'll just read the final sentence because it's really good. What was Mm -hmm. making Harry feel so horrified and unhappy was not being shouted at or having jars thrown at him. It was that he knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers. Knew exactly how Snape has felt as his father had taunted him, and that judging from what he had just seen, his father had been every bit as arrogant as Snape had always told him. I love that. It's rough. So sad. Mm-hmm. So, and I love that because throughout that whole scene, we're not really getting Harry's opinion on it. We're just kind of yeah. with him watching it unfold. Right. And like, this is when we realize, like, oh my gosh, he probably was bullied and teased like this. Or he was bullied and teased like that when he was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I feel like I remember reading this for the first time. I didn't even make that connection until I got to that sentence. And it was like, oh my gosh. You know, his horror is our horror. It's mm-hmm. written so well, that whole yeah. scene, that you're with Definitely. him every single step of the way. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And this book is really good at introducing – I mean, this is a big deal. This is kind of what I remember this book for, and it's kind of mm-hmm. late – and it's late in the game. You know, it's like we're more than halfway through the book. We're at page, like, uh, five – no, 646 already. And then this is this huge issue that Harry deals with. It's like the identity of his of his father. Um, yeah. And, like, by the time he takes it to, to Remus and Sirius, you know, like – even like it's still unacceptable how like Snape is treated, how they remember Snape being, and, and Harry is just not—he's rubbed way the wrong way about this, um, mm-hmm. about this whole issue. Order of the Phoenix was the height of Pottermania as well. It's everything exploded at this point, mm-hmm. um, and the 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 biggest wish from this point until the very end of the series was more Marauders. Yeah. The biggest wish for a spin-off series is more Marauders. <laughs> yep. The biggest category on fanfiction after this is Marauder Era. And we have still not had the information on how James and Lily came to find each other and how the Marauders became the Marauders we actually fall in love with pretty much when you know, when they're adults. I don't think they're that we different. We need more information. I don't think they're that should different. Should be a TV series. Yeah. Yes. It could be. Well, um, as to that, like, I feel like it's kind of like the, um, I mean, there's a very good reason JK Rowling will never explain how to make a Horcrux. Um, yeah. there's, I mean, I, I still, I think she does shy away though, like from even the James and Lily thing, because do you really need to know the specifics? Like, do, do we, I know we want to, cause we're like obsessed, but do we really need to know? I mean, eventually James, I mean, what we learn from Remus and Sirius eventually he came around, or he came around majorly. He had some growing up to do, mm-hmm. and then she came around just a little bit to meet him. So it feels. Do you think it's overkill, though? Do you think that this chapter then was overkill because it makes it so harsh that we kind of think less of Lily for ever even liking him, even if he changed? You know, coming together with this James character as portrayed in this chapter is too much of a stretch. I don't think we ever. Think less of Lily because of it. I think we only think less of James. 
I've never personally I've never thought, thought less of Lily. Same. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, do you, what, do you, you don't think she could have done better? or I don't think she had any duty to. No. Mm. Yeah. She'd been just called a mudblood. Mm-hmm. And she had defended him for a while, even though she, I mean, against what other people may have pressured her to do. Mm-hmm. And this kind of breaks um, breaks any desire to keep doing that. You don't... I would be really interested on Pottermore to find out the story behind James's big character change yep same um, yeah my personal like headcanon um is that you know the the war is happening at this moment the second war is is building up um and we know that james's parents are alive at this stage because sirius is staying with them what mm-hmm. if james's parents are killed in the next two years after this scene and it is their death and the the subsequent and and the war itself building up that makes James become a lot more serious and take the world more seriously. You know, I definitely think that's a good idea, but I'm thinking that weren't James's parents like significantly older? I always assume they died of old yeah. age or something. Possibly. Um, I think that, uh, it, I mean, it could be that Lily just makes him a better person. I mean, being with Lily too, like, I mean, he had to realize at some point, look, if he keeps this up, he's not going to have her in his life. Um, yeah, but but just right. the idea of war, because I'll go off with what you said, Rosie, <laughs> like war heating up. Um, war is, is not like you can't be selfish in a war. It's time to be selfless yeah. and, and fight against your mm-hmm. side. And so the, I think the bigger issues of the world start calling like everybody in the world, every student who is about to graduate Hogwarts starts feeling this pull of of duty to defend what's, you know, really important and I feel like that just mm-hmm. takes anybody who's not severely, severely arrogant out of their head and and onto you know the streets of of justice and and fighting and stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was he had the higher calling kind of thing that that helped him help take him away from his behavior a little bit. Yeah, I would agree. I think it would just make him grow up really quickly. And at this point, you know, he's fifteen and he's immature. And but you know, when the realities of war start sinking in, you know, that'll make you grow up overnight. And I just always kind of figured that that was what would happen with him. And furthermore, he's got the girl. I mean, after this, he's pretty much got the girl or, you know, he's on his he's on the track to getting Lily like who he really is interested in. And I feel like that could help him ease off of Snape and just not be as much of an ass to anybody else because he's actually Mm -hmm. happy, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And especially like, I mean, I think you're right, Rosie. This is such a turning point because this is also around when Snape be starts becoming really drawn toward the dark arts. So they're kind of just yeah. on completely divergent paths. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is such a significant memory for so many reasons, but also because it's such a turning point and maybe Snape realizes that now. You know, I um I wanted to ask uh you all a question, uh self-reflective kind of. I was uh at <laughs> uh self-reflective question for you guys. So at LeakyCon uh over the summer, I um Oh, I, I spoke on the, I moderated the panel for the actors, the HP actors, and Robbie Jarvis, mm-hmm. who plays um, young Dang. James, um, mm-hmm. I I started the, the question with, um, so James is a kind of a controversial character in the Harry Potter series, and he says, no, stop. You know, this is, he said, no, no, he's not controversial. He was 15. And Mm -hmm. I'm tired of people saying, oh, James Potter's this controversial character. He was 15. And weren't we all like that, really? And Mm -hmm. that because of what Robbie Jarvis said, uh, his weighing in, I have to ask you guys, like, was there, I mean, did you bully? Did you, or were you ever, can you see where, like, this is just a 15, like, kids being kids in a way? No, I disagree. I would agree with that, I think. Just because I I think that's such a tough age, I guess. I just, I feel like there are things I did at 15 that I wasn't proud of. And then I look at now and it's like, oh my gosh, I would never do that now. Were you a mean girl? Yeah. (laughs) No, no, just (laughs) gossipy. (laughs) There's definitely, you know, 15 is a difficult age. Mm -hmm. um, and, And teenagers go through a lot of things when they are 15. And yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a difficult time. Mm-hmm. But James was 15, Sirius and Remus and Peter are all 15, Snape is 15, but also Harry is 15, Ron is 15, Neville is 15, Ernie Macmillan is 15. Everybody's 15! <laughs> like, <laughs> in this book, they are all 15, mm-hmm. and they are all very different from James. 
Harry, the closest Harry gets to being like James is using Septum Sempra in yeah. this scene. And he <laughs> immediately feels horrible about it. He knows that it's the worst thing he could possibly have done. And he regrets pretty much everything from that point. Um, we never see any regret in James. And that is yeah. our issue. That is why he's controversial. Even if he was 15, we need to see the repentance um, to be able to feel better about him, I think. And not just have mm-hmm. I think a weak, lot of it. Yeah, the weak assurances from Remus that he was repented, you know, later or reformed. Yeah. Right, right. I Sorry, think a lot right. of it just speaks to their to their upbringing, like James's upbringing versus Harry's upbringing. Obviously very different. And that's why yeah. Harry has so many insecurity issues or, you know, a lack of confidence in himself, whereas James has maybe overconfidence. No, that makes sense to me. So for this question of the week, uh, we were focusing on this big, important part of the chapter, Snape's memory. So the question is, this is Snape's worst memory, as the title of the chapter states, but what makes it the, quote, worst? Is it the interaction with Lily and the guilt of calling her a mudblood? Is it the humiliation by James? Or the full scene of everyone laughing at him and labeling him as an outcast? Or is it something more? Or perhaps just a combination of everything? So what exactly makes it and labels it as his worst memory? Maybe he failed the OWL. And that's why, it's <laughs> <laughs> that's why he's never been hired. He put so much effort. He wrote a foot longer than everybody really else. <laughs> uh, and still failed. Just to end on a lighter note there. That's so funny. Um, well, uh, please uh, remember that you can respond to the podcast question of the week and add your comments to our discussion every week on the Alohomore main site. Uh, before we get to what that is, we want to thank our guest, Kara. Thank you so much, Kara, for coming on. Thank you for having me. This is my favorite chapter in my favorite Harry Potter book, so I was thrilled to be able to be on. Glad to have you on this one, then. And <laughs> if you guys out there have a favorite chapter of, well, the, the final few chapters of Order of the Phoenix or one of the future books, do let us know. We want you guys to be on the show with us. Click on the Be On The Show page at alohomoro.mogonet.com. All you need is a set of Apple headphones or something, something with a microphone and you're all set. No fancy equipment needed, just an internet connection, a microphone, and Skype. And as a brief reminder for the many ways you can contact us, you can get us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN at Facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore, on Tumblr at podcast, on Snapchat at MN underscore Alohomora. You can give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206-462-5287. Or you can leave us a comment through Audio Boom, which is right on our homepage, alohomore.mugglenet.com. It's totally free. You just need a microphone. But do please keep it under 60 seconds so that we can use it on the show. Um, we do also have our store, of course, with sweatshirts, long sleeve t-shirts, Perfect for the winter. Um, you've got tote bags, flip-flops, not so good in the winter, and much, much more. Um, we also have our free ringtones that are available on the website. And there is the smartphone app, which is available seemingly worldwide. Prices do vary. On the app, you can find transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Rosie Morris. Thank you for listening to episode 106 of Aloha Mora. Open the Dumbledore. <laughs>